Hello, and welcome to another edition of the PCOS Diva podcast. This is Amy Medling. I'm your host. I am a certified health coach and the founder of PCOS Diva. And today we're going to be discussing a topic that seems to be really uh, on the minds of a lot of divas, and that is what happens with PCOS and menopause. I know there's a lot of conversation around um, managing PCOS during our reproductive years. And uh, we wonder, you know, what happens during perimenopause and beyond um, to menopause. And, you know, I've heard a lot of um, interesting uh, reports from PCOS divas who have been having hysterectomies because their uh, doctors have advise them, you know, once they're done having children, let's remove your ovaries and it will kind of take care of your PCOS symptoms. And, and you know, I have a wonderful article on my site and I'll link to that from Dr. Felice Gersh, kind of explains um, that hysterectomy will not cure PCOS. Um, so, you know, we, we're going to kind of talk a little bit more about um, what a woman with PCOS, you know, entering those perimenopause years and um, menopause should really think about and know, and need to know. And I'm just thrilled to be speaking with Dr. Rashmi Khadija today. So welcome, Dr. Khadija. Thank you. So I uh, thank Dr. you so much, Amy. Oh, Go sure, ahead. sure. I just wanted to um, let people know a little bit about you. I, I met you recently at the uh, American Society of Reproductive Medicine, uh, their annual conference, and you were giving a talk about this exact subject, PCOS and menopause, and I thought that your talk was fantastic. You really mined a lot of the existing research um, and then sort of presented uh, the fact-based you know, information from studies regarding women and menopause and PCOS. So I was thrilled that you agreed to come on and talk to us about your findings. Um, thank you so much, Amy, for having me. This is a really exciting opportunity. Um, as you mentioned, I did give this talk at ASRM because, and, you know, as you were saying, there's a lot that we don't understand about PCOS in general, but particularly as we get you know, sort of later on in our reproductive years and into the perimenopause, there, you know, is really even more of a gray area in there. And so part of what I was really motivated to do a couple years back was to go through and do an evidence-based review of what do we know. And I'm really excited to share that with you today and hopefully, you know, get that information um, out to as many people as possible. Um, so, you know, I have a sort of variety of different areas uh, that, you know, I think about that are relevant issues as relates to PCOS, and we'll just kind of go through them one by one um, and highlight some of the most relevant issues that women might experience as they go through um, this phase of their lives. Uh, so Great. the first well, thing that let we me, always think let me, Oh, Dr. Dukadija, let me just interrupt quickly just to um, give listeners a kind of your background um, so they know that you are a reproductive endocrinologist and you, your specialty is infertility, and you treat um, patients at the RMA of New York in the Brooklyn mm -hmm. office. You specialize in treating couples who are trying to build their families, 
and you are well recognized amongst your peers for providing detailed and expert compassionate care. You're a graduate of Duke University, and you are an accomplished lecturer and author, and you've written numerous scientific research articles and manuscripts in leading medical journals, and you've presented many research findings at national meetings, including ASRM. So go ahead. Sorry to interrupt you there, but just wanted to let everybody know your background. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, so definitely. As a reproductive endocrinologist, you know, I do see most of my patients are sort of in their reproductive years, but a large part of my job is sort of helping prepare people for what happens after they leave my office. And so, um, you know, PCOS is my specific area of interest. And so, you know, like I said, this was a really interesting question to me, and I'm I'm definitely excited to share, you know, what I've found uh, out there so far. Um, so, you know, I think the first area of, of question is essentially, you know, what are the actual symptoms of PCOS um, and how do those change as we get older? And so the first way to think about it is, you know, what are the main diagnostic criteria for having PCOS? And the first thing that many of us think of is obviously what happens with the, with the woman's periods. Um, we know that, you know, normally at the time of diagnosing PCOS, we expect that there's going to be in many, in most women, um, either irregular or no periods at all. And so, um, you know, the, the thing that gets difficult is that as we get into the perimenopause, somewhere between 65 and 77 percent of perimenopausal women are going to be reporting cycles that are sort of out of the normal range. And so that becomes a pretty common thing to be finding in perimenopausal women in general. However, uh, interestingly, for women that have PCOS, the opposite tends to happen. So after having had potentially irregular menstrual cycles through most of their life, women might actually find um, that their cycles tend to become more regular as they approach menopause. Um, and that would be, you know, sort of con- you know, counterintuitive, perhaps, especially if at that time in their life a woman has a new gynecologist and comes in and says, oh, my periods are, are now, you know, coming every 28 days, um, you know, that might not give or raise the suspicion of, you know, oh, does this woman have potentially a history of PCOS? And so it's important to uh, remember that if, you know, you're having a new healthcare provider, perhaps in the late 40s, um, and at that time, if your cycles are regular, um, but you have a history of having had irregular menses for most of your life, that would be an important detail to, to mention. Um, but in light of the fact that the patterns seem to be so difficult, um, sorry, not difficult, but different for women that have PCOS, there essentially was a large consensus workshop that came together, and that was called the Stages of Reproductive Aging Workshop, or the STRAW Workshop, um, and they met and then actually had a 10-year later meeting again, and they concluded that given that our understanding of how menstrual cycles change in the perimenopause in women that have PCOS, the criteria that they've sort of put forward for predicting um, when the menopausal transition might happen shouldn't be applied to women with PCOS. And they really highlighted the fact that we need more research to characterize the patterns in women with PCOS as they transition into menopause. So that's sort of the one kind of area of things. The other aspect or one of the other Diagnostic criteria is the what we call hyperandrogenism or high levels of the male hormones or the androgen hormones, 
And, you know, the way that we test that when we're trying to make diagnostic um, information about PCOS is to either look from a laboratory perspective to do um, certain assays for those different androgen hormones um, or to actually just look chemically and, or um, clinically and say, oh, does a woman have a history of having excess hair on the face or the body, something that we call hirsutism, um, or, you know, are they having problems with really severe acne? Are there other things that indicate that there are high circulating levels of these hormones? And so hirsutism or having the excess body hair is really one of the most troublesome things to women um, that have PCOS. And unfortunately, um, that does seem to persist even through the menopause. And so we know that, again, that is one of those things that as women age, they're, in general, um, their androgen levels rise relative to their estrogen levels. And so many perimenopausal women that don't have PCOS for the first time start to notice more uh, of a male pattern of hair distribution or have some pesky chin hairs or whatnot. But for women that have PCOS, we found um, there was a really good uh, longitudinal study that looked at women that had PCOS over 21 years. And among other many other outcomes that it looked at, it found that women that had um, PCOS um, had a 44% incidence of having hirsutism when they were in their reproductive years and a 64% um, percent, uh, prevalence of having it in their menopausal years. And so when we compare that to women that were matched by age but did not have PCOS, we found that in the reproductive years, they had a 6% uh, prevalence, so that was a 6% compared to 44 for women that had PCOS. And then as the non-PCOS women went through menopause, that incidence was at 9%, and that was compared to 64%. So you can see that, you know, for women that have PCOS, certainly even as they go through the menopause, there's definitely a higher um, rate of having that, that troublesome hirsutism. Um, and the reason, um, you know, that that, you know, may persist is there is, you know, some question of, you know, what are the actual changes in hormones that are happening at that time. And we know that, um, you know, actually, though there are a lot of limitations with doing tests, um, hormone testing in, in menopausal women, because of the limits of the tests that we have, they aren't able to be as specific and sensitive at defining levels the lower ranges, which is where we tend to be as we get into that age range. Um, but what we know so far is that it does seem that despite this disparity that, you know, women with PCOS continue to experience more hirsutism and more of these troublesome symptoms, the hormone levels are falling, just maybe not um, as much as we might like. So um, multiple studies of women with PCOS do demonstrate that there have been reductions in testosterone levels, the other androgen hormone levels, and they actually do come down to levels that are very similar to women that don't have PCOS. Um, but because those levels rise in women that do not have PCOS and all women as we get to the menopause, um, like I said, you know, all women are experiencing some of these androgenic symptoms. Mm. So, you know, if we looked at multiple women, you know, two different women, one that had PCOS and one that didn't, um, you know, at this range, we would know that the androgen levels for the PCOS women have fallen significantly, but despite that, there still seems to be a relatively significant rate of there being excess hair. Um, now, did, it has been reported. Find, can I interrupt quick? Um, sure, Did please. you find any um, studies on androgenic alopecia or acne? Um, and how that relates to the androgen, like rising or falls of the androgen levels in menopause? That is a, that's a great question. And um, unfortunately, you know, I think androgenic alopecia or sort of that male pattern baldness is 
one really, really troublesome symptom of PCOS that really has been under-researched. And so we know, I mean, I think right now there are a number of people I can think of that are trying to do more work at looking at that even in reproductive-aged women. Um, but there hasn't been much, you know, looking at, there hasn't been any study that I found that looked at those um, issues of acne and alopecia as we get through to the menopause and what happens with that. My supposition would be that, again, despite, you know, the patterns of hormones that we see and our hope that, okay, you know, as the hormone levels become comparable to women that don't have PCOS, perhaps, um, you know, we would hope that the symptoms would as well. But looking at what has been pretty firmly established in the hirsutism sort of aspect of things, I would say that, unfortunately, I think for whatever reason that we don't yet understand, um, some of those patterns and physiology seem to be already pre-established in, in these women, and, and there's right. not anything to suggest that, unfortunately, um, you know, that all of a sudden these issues might resolve themselves, mm-hmm. um, which is really frustrating. Um, you know, yeah. one of the... <laughs> One of the thoughts may be, and this is, you know, again, a study, you know, sort of a study finding that needs more corroboration, um, you know, though the overall levels of these hormones may be falling, there is some indi- uh, indication that the free um, level or the free androgen index, which is another way of looking at the actually biologically active uh, components of these male hormones, may remain elevated in women that have PCOS as they go through the menopause. So it may be that perhaps that, you know, even though overall levels are falling, um, if we compare women that had PCOS versus not at the menopause, um, that biologically active component may still be higher, and that might explain um, some of this disparity and why it persists, even though, you know, we're going through the menopausal transition. Um, but we definitely, you know, still need more work to be done in this area so we can help guide what are appropriate expectations. So um, the other aspect, remember, we think about the male hormones. Obviously, we're also wondering what's going to happen with the female hormones, the estrogens. And the estradiol and estrone levels, which are two of the male, uh, female hormones, um, are generally higher in reproductive-aged women with PCOS, but they also tend to fall to levels that, when have, they have been measured, are comparable to menopausal women that don't have PCOS. Um, and this, you know, is just really part of, these patterns are really part of the normal ovarian aging process. So normally our estrogens are produced by our ovaries as we go through our normal menstrual cycle. And so, um, you know, as the ovary ages um, at a rate that's really individual in each woman, we expect that, um, you know, the estrogen levels are going to change. And as we ovulate less and less um, and less robustly as our, our egg quality goes down with age, those estrogen levels will will be falling sort of gradually as well. Um, and then not only that, the, ovar- uh, the ovarian component of estrogens is changing as we get older, but also the adrenal gland, which sits right above our kidneys and is also responsible for making a lot of hormones, um, also ages as well. And so there is changes in the hormone production coming from that adrenal gland as well. Um, and both of the, those ages, um, as those, both of those hormones age, there is that shift in the estrogen and androgen balance in women as they go through menopause. Um, and so basically I would summarize all of that to say that in general, both female and male hormone levels are falling um, in women uh, as they go through the menopause, but that in women that have PCOS, it seems that, you know, that elevated level of male hormone relative to female seems to persist, um, at least if we look at the free androgen index and in some of the ways that it manifests clinically. Um, so that's sort of the way I would I would summarize that. Um, Like I said, with, you know, the caveat of the testing that we have available so far. Right, right. Well, tell us about metabolic consequences of PCOS and the risk of type 2 diabetes and um, and even uh, cardiovascular disease. What 
what are the risk factors as we um i mean it, it it is a big risk factor for women with PCOS but how does that change going into menopause is it still sure. at risk so, are we still at higher risk yeah go ahead this is i think i think this is one of the the most interesting aspects of this whole question and so what we know is that in you know even young women teenagers and then certainly through the reproductive years having PCOS um, independent of, you know, being overweight or obese is associated with multiple metabolic disruptions like impaired glucose tolerance, type 2 diabetes, having abnormal cholesterol and lipid profiles, um, et cetera. And so um, we know that, you know, conversely, again, when we look at women that are going through the menopausal transition, we know that the risk for cardiovascular disease in all women starts to go up at that time. And so, you know, initially my concern, and I think for many people our concern in general would be, okay, if as a woman that has PCOS, you've had higher risks of all of these things throughout the reproductive years, does that put you at even higher risk as you go through the, you know, right. sort of that stressful period of the menopause, which is, a you know, a time of concern for all women? And so I think this is, you know, what's a really interesting aspect of what we know so far um, is that essentially, you know, if we look at the different markers of cardiovascular health, for example, um, you know, we see that um, in general, um, basically women that have PCOS um, in a way, their risk level sort of seems to taper off to the point where women that don't have PCOS in many regards seem to be catching up in terms of their risk profiles. So, um, for example, um, if we look at young women that have PCOS, in general, they have a higher rate of obesity, a higher waist-to-hip ratio, which is a measurement that sort of tries to quantify where the fat is distributed. And we understand that if it's waist um, fat or truncal fat, that's a higher risk, metabolically speaking, than, you know, lower extremity or other places of fat distribution. Um, and so at that time, they also have higher rates of metabolic syndrome, other cardiovascular risk factors. But by the time of menopausal transition, that incidence of increased waist-hip ratio, et cetera, um, pretty much comes to the level that we see in, in women that don't have PCOS. And the studies that have looked at this so far have found that there's no significant difference in the incidence of obesity and waist-hip ratio in women that have a history of PCOS compared with control women. And so, again, like I'm saying, that, you know, at this point, our understanding is that with some of these things, essentially, the risk for non-PCOS women seems to catch up um, to the risk that women with PCOS have had sort of from a lifelong perspective. Um, you know, there are a lot of other patterns that have been looked um, looked at in terms of a lot of inflammatory markers and the lipid profiles and all of these, you know, things that we're worried about as we go through the reproductive years. And again, you know, um, in looking at lipid profiles, for example, for one thing, um, in women that are perimenopausal, it's been suggested that, again, these um, findings and the, you know, the lipid profile getting worse as we get older is more related to our aging process than the pre-existing PCOS diagnosis. So in one study that looked at this, um, you know, after they adjusted for PCOS, um, they, uh, this study, particularly by um, a group led by Elting, um, found that a variety of conditions like having high insulin levels, bad lipid profiles, and high blood pressure were all more strongly related to having obesity rather than having PCOS. And so I would summarize it to say that, you know, PCOS may not um, increase the baseline heart disease risk factors in women that are aging over and beyond that which is part of being either obese, if you already are, um, or being perimenopausal. Um, unfortunately, we need more studies to look at this. 
Um, you know, and I think it's very frustrating because we know that, um, you know, again, we sort of are, I really try to go myself out of my way to tell my young patients, you know, it's really important to, you know, watch your diet and exercise from a young age on forward and to try to avoid the morbidities that come along with uncontrolled PCOS, so type 2 diabetes, etc. Um, but all the longitudinal studies have shown that there's not an increased risk of um, heart attack or stroke or, or basically having very severe morbidity or mortality from PCOS in the postmenopausal years. And so, you know, does that, I, but what I don't want people to think is, okay, well, I guess that means that there's no risk to me. I think that the way I would interpret this data is to say that if we can just help women that have PCOS avoid those morbidities, avoid um, gaining too much weight, avoid developing diabetes and really bad heart disease during those reproductive years, by the time they get to the menopause, their risk is, you know, really reduced relative to, you know, their reproductive years where having PCOS was such a big risk factor. Um, and then at that point, you know, they're in their you know, average age of menopause is 51, so they're in their early 50s. And then I would say, okay, you know, if we've been able to, for all these many years, decades, avoid all of these bad comorbidities, now you're essentially at the same risk as any other perimenopausal woman. And again, you know, we just have sort of the normal diet and exercise exercise lifestyle recommendations. Yeah, that's that's really good news, um, especially for me. I'm going to be 45 next year, so I'm <laughs> uh, really <laughs> approaching that um, 51 average uh, quickly. But, you know, knowing that all of um, the, the lifestyle changes that I made through my 30s and, and 40s um, are really going to put me... Um, you know, I'm not going to be at a greater risk for uh, cardiovascular events. Um, is really eases my mind um, as long as I yes, keep up with my should. positive, li- yeah, lifestyle change. Um, what yeah, about- I think there's a lot of hope there. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think that is, you know, there's there's a lot of reasons to be hopeful. I think that people feel, you know, when I tell them at age 20 something that you know you you know you really have a lifelong situation of needing to be really on top of your diet and exercise. Sometimes people feel, you know, very burdened or, de- you know, depressed by that news. But I think mm-hmm. that the good news here is that if we can just be vigilant in those early years um, and avoid, you know, developing early diabetes, you know, in the 30s or 40s, that, you know, by the time if you've established that healthy lifestyle, then you really should be fine. Um, yeah. And, you know, there's no there's no higher risk of having, you know, heart attack or stroke that we've found so far. So I think that that is, you know, really encouraging um, and hopefully motivating finding for for younger women. So I'm not sure if you'll be able to answer this question, um, but I think women are wondering about, like, what is the protocol for, um, you know, the the metformin? Is this something that they should be taking um, into perimenopause and menopause? Um, And I'm sure it's, you know, it's a, a... you have to look at the patient, but do you know, is there like any specific protocol for metformin for women with PCOS as they age? Sure, that's a great question. You know, I think in general, historically, you know, in many providers' minds, there's this equation of PCOS equals metformin, and I would really encourage people to move away from that because it's not... Um, indicated for everybody. And metformin definitely is a drug that has significant side effects for a lot of people. It gives them a lot of gastrointestinal disturbances and it's not super pleasant to be taking. And so what I would say, you know, now, so it used to be that we used metformin for even for women that were trying to um, conceive as a way of helping um, 
stimulate ovulation. And nowadays, we know that there are better medications for that, and that's been well studied. Um, that nowadays, I would say probably letrozole um, is the number one medication for helping um, someone to ovulate, you know, aside from obviously talking about lifestyle management and potential, you know, the potential for if we can get to a healthier weight, perhaps the periods will come back regularly, cycle regularly on your own. But aside from that, from a medication perspective... Go ahead. Um, just to back up quick, for those who don't, I think letrozole, um, you know, I know Dr. Legro has done a lot of work yes. with um, the studies on letrozole versus Clomid, but could you just, for those that haven't heard of that um, pharmaceutical, could you sure. kind of just give a quick overview? Thanks. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So letrozole, essentially what it is, is it's in the class of medications called aromatase inhibitors. And aromatase is the... Um, the enzyme essentially that converts the androgens into the estrogens. And so what it does is it's essentially by inhibiting that process tricks the brain into seeing a relatively lower level of estrogen. And because, as I mentioned in the very beginning, estrogen normally comes from the ovaries, is made by the growing follicles, the brain sees that as, oh, there's not any follicles growing. Um, and in response to that, sends out a little bit more of follicle-stimulating hormone to the ovary to try to push it a little bit harder to grow a follicle. And so by taking letrozole, essentially what we do is sort of help the brain to stimulate the ovary a tad bit harder um, so that it's more likely to actually grow an egg and then uh, actually reach, you know, the time of ovulation. So the nice thing about letrozole compared to Clomid, um, there are probably two main things. One, especially for younger women, in general, letrozole um, oftentimes will just stimulate one follicle to grow rather than multiple, um, which particularly for really young women is always a concern because we're aiming for that healthy singleton pregnancy. Um, so that's nice. And then also Clomid... Um, tends to have an anti-estrogenic effect on the endometrium or the lining of the uterus. And so sometimes women that are taking Clomid can have really thin linings and find it difficult to get pregnant for that reason. Um, but letrozole doesn't seem to be um, causing that side effect. And so um, that's another big advantage. And so the big trial um, that's called the PPCOS-2 trial um, actually published their main findings in the New England Journal of Medicine last year showing that, or maybe it was earlier this year, but showing that in women that have PCOS, um, letrozole is superior to Clomid in terms of, you know, live birth rates and conception rates and even ovulation rates. So, um, you know, that tends to be my first go-to um, nowadays for ovulation induction. Um, yeah, I'm so glad, you, I'm glad that, you mentioned that. Oh, I just want to say I'm glad you mentioned that because I don't think that's really out in mainstream yet. And, yeah. I, you know, it's, I think it's going to be up to women, you know, listening to really go um, and advocate for yourself, and, and I'll have to get an article about that on the site with the research, so you can you know bring the PubMed studies into your doctor and show them. Um, yeah. But you know, since since we're on the the topic of ovulation, um, it, was there anything in your research that indicated that women with PCOS um, had you know a, a um, increased or lengthened reproductive lifespan, or um, they were ovulating? Um, you know, longer than their non-PCOS counterparts? Right, yeah. So that's another interesting question. So again, you know, uh, we know that throughout the reproductive years in general, women with PCOS have a higher, you know, what we call ovarian reserve um, or number of eggs that there could be. Um, and so our, our normal measures of ovarian reserves are, you know, the antral follicle count. So looking by ultrasound, how many um, follicles are there, looking at the follicle-stimulating hormone level, looking at the anti-mullerian hormone level or AMH level. And so all three of those markers of ovarian reserve tend to be 
you know, higher in women that have PCOS. And so in studies that have tried to model it out on a population level, um, each of those models seems to suggest that in general women that have PCOS would have approximately two years uh, longer in terms of their reproductive lifespan. However, um, you know, when people have actually looked at it instead of just modeling it out, um, they haven't found that so far. And so mm-hmm. um, right now I would say it's really unclear whether the reproductive lifespan is lengthened or not um, because though when we model it out, it seems like, you know, it should really it should really be that women are seeming to have higher ovarian reserve throughout their reproductive years, um, and so therefore, wouldn't you think that um, they should go through menopause a bit later? Um, no study has actually, you know, conclusively demonstrated that. So whether it's due to, you know, perhaps at the end of the reproductive years, there's a even higher or faster rate of ovarian depletion in women that have PCOS, you know, that might be one explanation. Um, hard to know, but I would say that, you know, the other thing is that even when ovarian reserve numbers are really good, um, as we get into our 40s and beyond, you know, the egg quality and the chance of there being chromosomal issues also starts to become significant. And so I wouldn't want women in their 30s that have PCOS that go for ovarian reserve testing and have awesome numbers to think, okay, well, I can just keep putting this off if I want to have children um, because my numbers look great. Uh, because it doesn't seem like, you know, their reproductive lifespan will necessarily be longer. And certainly having PCOS does not do anything to pr- protect against the normal age-related increase in chromosomal issues with ovaries and with eggs as we age. So I think that's an important message. Yeah, oh, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, so no problem. And to go back to your prior question about yeah. Metformin, I just wanted to answer that um, more more clearly. So I think that, um, you know, I think that Metformin really in general for reproductive age women, you know, the, the goal should be to use it in women that are either overweight or obese to, you know, try to prevent or slow down the progression to type 2 diabetes. And, you know, I think that that's, and that's strictly speaking the most, you know, kind of conservative criteria for who is the best candidate. Um, and for some women, it is can be very helpful. I have had patients that really were able to lose weight a lot more easily um, when they were on metformin. And so for that indication, it you know, it seems to have a role. Um, not that it's effective for everyone or not that everybody tolerates it well, but that may be the indication. So, um, you know, but again, as we get older, um, you know, that, impact of, you know, should you be taking metformin beyond the menopause, you know, and and so on and so forth, I don't really think it's necessarily indicated because at that point, like I said, from a metabolic standpoint, it seems that, again, people, all women are sort of coming to a more uh, level playing field. Um, And, you know, at 50, if you've managed to get through, you know, the majority of your reproductive years, et cetera, without developing type 2 diabetes, I think it's safe to say if you come off the metformin and continue on with a relatively healthy lifestyle, you know, it's not an overwhelming risk. Um, and at that point, you know, that's what we've tried to prevent essentially is an early development of type 2 diabetes. And so, you know, I don't think that continuing on metformin for the rest of one's life kind of makes mm-hmm. the most sense. Okay. So anything else? that you feel you want to get the message out from, you know, looking at at the data and the research regarding menopause and PCOS? Sure. So I think, you know, you mentioned in the beginning that um, there seems to be some incidence of unnecessary surgery that's either being done or being recommended. And, you know, the question is, okay, you know, what to do, um, you know, with women as we're getting, you know, menopausal. And I, I, there's, you know, this really barbaric notion that if we just, you know, take out the ovaries or take out the uterus, that somehow we've fixed the problem. 
um, you know, we have those organs for a reason. <laughs> they contribute a lot um, throughout our, our lifespan. And so under no circumstances is there really an indication to say, oh, well, you have PCOS, therefore we should be removing X, Y, or Z. Um, so really, you know, if we think about what is the data or what are the reasons, I would think that, you know, again, from a hormonal perspective or a perspective of, you know, are these organs somehow contributing to a worse uh, risk profile for metabolic disease or whatever, we've covered that. So I wouldn't say there's any indication that there's any sort of protective um, role of taking out the ovaries for somehow, you know, improving the metabolic um, risk profile of women that have PCOS. Um, the other question one might think is, okay, is there maybe a higher risk of cancer or is there something um, from an oncologic perspective that would um, lead someone to recommend that? And what we know in general is that for women that have PCOS, if they have really irregular cycles, basically what happens is that the lining on their uterus can be exposed to a lot of estrogen over time because of the fluctuating estrogen levels without the protective effect of progesterone, which is produced after you actually ovulate. So for younger women, um, you know, there is a risk if you're not having regular cycles or if you're not, you know, on some sort of um, hormonal treatment to induce regular cycles, um, that there could be a risk of hyperplasia or like over for growth or eventually cancer of the lining of the uterus. Um, but, you know, and so the overall risk to PCOS women of endometrial cancer is definitely higher than women that don't have PCOS. But if this is managed appropriately, um, you can generally really avoid having to have a hysterectomy. Um, and so this is really something where women need to know that, you know, they really need to be having some sort of bleeding approximately every three months on average. And so, um, you know, whether that's through taking birth control or having, you know, taking Provera every now and then or whatever your normal cycle is, however it happens, um, or even having potentially an intrauterine device in place, um, any of these ways, there's so many different ways to manage this, but as long as someone's having fairly regular bleeding, that's an appropriate way of managing, um, you know, the irregular uh, cycles and trying to do our best to prevent endometrial cancer. I would never recommend someone to just have um, a hysterectomy prophylactically. It's a big surgery. Um, you know, obviously there are maybe could be some very specific case where that might make sense, but by and large it's not. Um, and with regard to ovarian cancer, um, there was literally one study that showed that maybe there was a slightly higher rate of ovarian cancer in women that have PCOS, but I would say that's very weak evidence, and I, I don't think um, that there is any indication based on an oncologic perspective to say that we need to be taking out, you know, uteri or ovaries um, just because a woman has a diagnosis of PCOS. So if, you know, someone gets that recommendation and there's not some other mitigating factor or some other reason, then I think people... Um, should be, you know, feel empowered to push back a little bit and say, well, really, like specifically for my case, why um, would you recommend this surgery? Uh, because to me, I, on a blanket, you know, as a blanket recommendation, it doesn't seem to make sense. Yeah, and and you know, be a, be your own advocate again, be a diva at the doctor, and um, and get a second opinion. So, um, thanks for for sharing, you know, what you've. Uh, learned about PCOS and menopause. I think it's definitely um, a topic that, you know, gosh, I would love to see more more studies done because um, yeah. I think there's a lot um, more women with PCOS with diagnoses that, you know, are kind of um, aging uh, and we we want more information. So, you know, I'm very grateful for to you for taking the time to, you know, do the research for us. Oh, sure. My pleasure. I mean, I, there's just so much there. I think there are a lot of things that women struggle 
um, with with PCOS throughout their years, even, you know, things like, um, you know, poor sleep or poor quality of life or, you know, higher levels of anxiety and depression. There's a lot of things um, that are out there, and those are all, you know, as it turns out, many of them are issues that women struggle with in the menopausal years as well. And so, you know, there's a lot of questions that I have and that I'm sure many other people have about, you know, does that risk compound um, as we, you know, put those two things together, um, and what can we do to, you know, make it healthier and easier for people to make that transition. So I totally agree. Hopefully there is much more research coming out, and I, you know, I am part of some um, sort of groups of people that are thinking of looking into this specific question more so. So hopefully within the next few years we'll have a few more answers and a few less questions. So I also wanted to ask you, I um, like to ask our experts to leave us with a message of hope. And, you know, I know as a reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist, you know, meeting with couples, you know, every day. Um, tell us, you know, what 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 message of hope can you leave um, with us? Sure. With yeah. That's such a great question, and I love that way of thinking about things. You know, in general, um, as a fertility specialist, my perspective when I have, you know, a patient or a couple sitting in front of me is to sort of acknowledge that, you know, they never really wanted to have to be in my office. And so, you know, what are the things that I can tell them that make this, you know, make whatever diagnosis they may or may not have less stressful? And so with regards to PCOS, I would say that, you know, it's it's quite – um, like I said, it's quite a lot of news to get this diagnosis and then be told that it may have potentially um, fertility ramifications and it may have lifelong metabolic ramifications. But I think that what the research indicates is that, you know, similar to any other person, that if you really from a young age make those lifestyle changes, really pursue a healthy lifestyle with good diet, with, you know, getting good exercise, um, you know, and sort of mitigating developing the overweight, the obesity that then turns into the type 2 diabetes, et cetera, that you can really prevent there being any long-term increases in your overall serious morbidity or, or God forbid, mortality um, as you get older. And I think that as a physician, you know, for me, having that mentality or that outlook of prevention is really important. And so I think that there is a lot of hope looking at this data to say that, you know, again, if we make those, implement those changes at a young age, that there's no reason to think that this diagnosis, you know, somehow gives you um, not even a death sentence, but even, you know, a really horrible prognosis for being healthy in your older years. Um, so again, I think that, you know, that's great news. And I think, I hope that it's motivating and inspiring to young women um, and to middle-aged women as you know, throughout really every phase of the lifespan um, to say, okay, now is a great time. Every day is a great time to make a lifestyle improvement um, and know that, you know, there is a payoff that comes with that regardless mm -hmm. of having a PCOS diagnosis. Yeah, and I know, like, for me, I consider PCOS a wake-up call. You know, it was really an opportunity yeah. for me to take charge of my health, and I can tell you I am healthier today because of PCOS, um, because of my PCOS diagnosis. So, Thank you so much, Dr. Khadija, for, for sharing your good news with us today. <laughs> My pleasure. And thank you, everyone, for listening. I look forward to being with you again next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>